Now, if that isn't a theme tune, I don't know what is. That's amazing. And that is Sylvester McCoy on the spoons playing the Doctor Who theme tune. Oh, good job. The definitive version. Yeah. When Delia Derbyshire sat there chopping up those bits of tape, creating that. Yeah. That's how she initially envisioned it. But they didn't have the technology back in the 60s. Yeah. So, this is Doctor Who, Too Hot for TV. I'm Dylan. You are? I am Jack. Well, here we go. And this is a possibly monthly, possibly the only one we'll ever do, possibly whenever we can be asked, podcast about, what would you describe it as, like the Uh, extended universe? The the added bits, like the little badges that you sew onto a jacket. (laughs) The jacket is the main show. And the added bits are the badges. So this is basically Ace's Blue Peter badge. Yes, yes. Fantastic. Tell me about your relationship and history with Doctor Who. I cannot remember a time when I didn't know Doctor Who. Uh, My earliest memories are of Castrovalva. Great. uh, And of uh, lots of young actors walking around... uh, Parks, (laughs) Parks, <laughs> which is the planet Castrovalva, <laughs> and I would make biro drawings of the castle uh, and the tissue compression eliminator. It's <laughs> oh, got a lot to answer for, and you can't get any sexual gratification without being thrust up on a hoist like Adric and having uh, a man with a beard laugh at you as well. Yeah, my know. safe word is Shardaban. <laughs> Brilliant. So that's Jack. I'm Dylan. We're brothers. I got into Doctor Who by watching Battlefield Episode 1 on its first broadcast. Yes, yeah. Is it your favourite story? No. No. I know Cash of Elva isn't great, but I still love it. Curse of Fenric's my favourite. Yes, yeah. Because that was the one that actually frightened me. Like, I was like, I couldn't watch Part 3 because it was too fucking scary. I ran out of the room uh, when the VHS was playing because it was too scary to finish. It's still petrifying there. Yeah. Yeah, oh, so just go. the cassette, not the actual, not what's on it, just the cassette scared me, <laughs> just all that black vinyl and plastic. Um, so that leads quite nicely into what we're talking about today, because we're going to talk about two Seventh Doctor, or sort of Seventh Doctor stories. Um, so can you remember your first experience of the Seventh Doctor, or was it all just a mixture of Doctor Who? It was, it was probably The Curse of Fenric. Mm-hmm. Because that was the best and the scariest. And generally, as a kid, particularly uh, if, as like being a young boy, you want to watch the scariest stories, even though you can't, uh, you know, hack it all the way through. Yeah. Um, you want to seek out the scariest ones. And The Curse of Fenric, I guess it was an early VHS release. I think it was the first McCoy. And I can't remember which one came after that, but I think it was quite a while before there was any other McCoys out there. I think after that, maybe like Paradise Towers no. sticks out what, as a... wasn't that. I can tell you, do you know why? Because Paradise Towers was the last Doctor Who VHS that I ever bought. Okay. But it was the missing link. Uh, Ghost Lights? Dragonfire. Dragonfire, yeah. a classic. Yeah, yeah, that was scary. I found that scary. I remember thinking what great production values it had as a kid. And going back to it now, I mean, it's Sylvester McCoy slipping around all over the place on the pretend snow and nobody else is. And it yeah. just looks like the worst studio. I still don't know mm. why they chose that cliff of that clip of the cliffhanger in when they did the name of the doctor. It's like they went, <laughs> what's the shittest bit of the McCoy era that we could go back to to yeah. remind everybody how ropey classic Doctor yeah. Who used to be? Maybe Clara wasn't going back to save the doctor. She was going back to fix the shit bits of the show <laughs> so she was she's there to actually try and improve it somehow that's true if only they dropped her into invasion of the dinosaurs we might have some convincing <laughs> dinosaurs so the first thing we're going to talk about is a cold day in hell which ran it's a comic strip um which you can get in kind of book format now graphic novel as they called mm. uh, but it ran originally in doctor who magazine from november 1987 to february 1988 in four parts from issues 130 to 133 now i've had a look back at these issues of doctor who magazine exciting stuff going on uh, season 24 had began broadcasting in the September of 87, so there was, they still carried on for a couple of months with Colin Baker's Doctor and the comic strip while they wrapped that up. Um, and it concluded in December with Dragonfire. 
Now, around this time, it was obviously announced that Bonnie was leaving and Sophie Aldred was taking over. It was also announced that Evil of the Daleks 2 and The Faceless Ones Episode 3 had been found in wherever they'd been found, church basements, whatever. Um, one of the issues leads with the news that Wendy Padbury was getting divorced. <laughs> There was a whole issue <laughs> devoted to that. That that I mean that was like that was like a royal wedding. That was like Diana's death. People didn't get divorced in the eighties, you see. So it was big news. And you know, she was back on the market. I think she ended up marrying a fan, you know. Really? Yeah. It was one of the people and this leads into something later. She didn't marry them, she certainly went out with them for a while. It was one of the people that wrote one of the BBV audios. Wow. Never you, date your fans. Never, never date, date your fans. fans. You listening, Nicola Bryan. <laughs> Uh, it was also announced around the time that 60s uh, Who stalwarts Rex Tucker and Hugh David died. But, you know, I mean, that's what old people do. Uh, and it was also announced there will be a season 25, despite the ratings being down. And in issue 133, mm. the one where um, with the final part of Cold Day in Hell, there was mm. nothing relevant to talk about at all. There was no news. Yeah. Nothing was going on. Yeah, it's quite... I mean, I get the feeling from... Uh, from what I've seen of Doctor Who magazine from that time, I get the impression that it was a bit like being a member of the Labour Party at the moment <laughs> in terms of just supporting us what is a dying cause. <laughs> and you're just really optimistic that you can kind of turn it around to get somewhere, but it's it's downhill. You can get, you know, and you get some stuff coming through your door and you think, I should read it, but you don't. You just flick through and go, oh, there's somebody that's going to replace Jeremy yeah. Corbyn. There's yeah. Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant in, in uh, straw hats <laughs> and with bamboo canes dancing around like everything's fine, Pretend, <laughs> pretending everything's fine when they know it's not. You carry on, Colin. Yeah. You carry on. It's yeah. the equivalent of Labour announcing that they're going to give free broadband to everyone just like, two days before election day. We're, <laughs> we're going to make 900 episodes of Doctor Who next year starring William Hartnell, but he's been dead. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Not listening. Not listening. Yeah. That's exactly how yeah. it was. We're going on hiatus, but here's a hat and a cane. <laughs> Look dance. like you're having fun. Dance, piggy, dance. <laughs> I'm sorry, Colin. So, Cold Day in Hell. I'm going to give a quick rundown of the plot. So, the Seventh Doctor and Frobisher, the shape-changing penguin who accompanied the Sixth Doctor in his travels, land on the planet Alux, which is supposed to be a beautiful holiday planet, but it's been frozen and there's nobody about. They go exploring, they meet a heat vampire called Ola, who tries to suck all the warmth out of the Doctor, but Frobisher twats her with a stick and she falls <laughs> over. Uh, the Ice Warriors appear, Frobisher and Ola are separated from the Doctor, who becomes their prisoner uh, of them and their collaborator, Ross. Frobisher and Ola meet some locals and they get into a fight with the Ice Warriors while the Doctor manages to reverse the freezing conditions that the Ice Warriors imposed on the planet and defeat them. Frobisher decides to stay behind and help the locals out in a very sort of 60s Doctor Who companion way. Um, and Ola, despite having met the Doctor for about a minute, decides to leave with the Doctor. And um, yeah, there you go. That's, that's the story. So what did you think? I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a great comic strip. Yeah? I thought it had loads of action. Um, it's it's drawn really well. And I'm saying that because I, I was reading this in the compendium graphic novel hmm. that Panini bought out. Panini? Panai? Panini? Is it Panini? Who yeah. knows? Panini Books. Yeah. Yeah. They okay. do sandwiches and Doctor Who magazine. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to diversify your income, haven't you? <laughs> um, and looking at the other strips, not many artists draw Sylvester McCoy that well. Um, John Ridgway, who is the artist of A Cold Day in Hell, uh, is really, really good at capturing uh, Sylvester McCoy's kind of clownish personality. Um and it comes across in the writing as well. Like, it's, it's uh, honestly, reading the other strips from the time, it is the most Doctor Who-y of all of the comic strips I didn't read there. any of the others. Uh, you're not missing anything. <laughs> um, we'll be covering them in a future episode. Yeah, I guess. The, 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 I mean, the one thing that sticks out is Frobisher. Um, it's weird, isn't it, seeing the Seventh Doctor... Not just seeing the Seventh Doctor and Frobisher together, but also it's the Seventh Doctor mentioning Perry. Yes. Which yeah. is very odd. Yes. There's lots of continuity in there. Um, like the Ice Warriors turn up in it and immediately mention 
what's what they've been doing since they appeared in John Pertwee's uh, story. What have they been doing? Um, uh, I, I think they went on holiday. Yes. Um, uh, like they, they they specifically make a point of tying in what's happened since the monster of Peladon. Yeah. Which is like, I mean, why? You don't yeah. need to. But um, fair enough. But Doctor Who fans in the eighties wanted that shit, right? They want to know where have the yeah. ice warriors. And I think what they say is something along the lines of, I mean, yeah, the ice warriors are still down with the Federation, but we're a separatist group. Yes. You yeah. know, we don't. We believe the ice warriors should be warriors yes. of ice, and yeah. they do the thing that they always do, which is make everything a bit colder. Yes. Yes. Um, that classic, classic uh... cold agenda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, there's there's loads of action. The Doctor is the Doctor and very doctor doctorish. Mm. Um, uh, the Seventh Doctor is really good at being this kind of devious but funny character, which is weird because that hadn't really been established by that point. Like you don't see a lot of that in season twenty four. No. Bearing in mind this was going out at the same time as Dragonfire. Yeah, and it's like I don't know. Are we? Are you placing that kind of thing onto? The characterization because it's something we later know of the of the seventh doctor or is it in this comic strip no I, I think there's lots of scenes where the the doctor is really setting things up so like he fakes his own death in it yeah um and is really kind of um he really takes the piss out of the ice warriors yeah um and there's just a lot of he's got he's got some Big dick energy. <laughs> for, um... That's what Sylvester McCoy is known for having, um, and that is that is a combination of the writing and the way that it's drawn and the way the the character is framed. Mm. So it might be just the input of I don't know what the the uh, what the illustrator John Ridgway did around this, but it well, might have just been his input whether he'd been working on superhero comics at the time and is actually putting a bit of uh, that kind of energy into a Doctor Who comic strip. So John Ridgway illustrated all of the six Doctor comics, and this was his departing story. Yeah. Um, and he came back to do a few more for the seventh Doctor. He, because what we forget is that this Doctor Who magazine was published by Marvel then. Mm. So he was one of the jobbing Marvel artists on all the Marvel comics. Um, so, I mean, technically this is part of the Marvel universe. So mm. And something we may cover in a future one, but this is a genuine thing. There are things like Doctor Who crossovers with like the She-Hulk and things like that. Really? Like just like one little page backup strips. Yeah. In like Hulk comics and things yeah. like that, where these things sort of. Cr so basically, it's only a matter of time before Disney buy Doctor Who, and then we've got Doctor Who in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. How do you feel about that? Uh, no comment. No comment. Okay. Um, but so yeah, it was John Ridgway. And then it was also Tim Perkins who was the inker, and he basically did a handful of sixth and seven Doctor comics. It's interesting what you say about him capturing the likeness, because I think McCoy's face is really good, mm. but I think he gets the body wrong quite a lot. There's mm. a, on the sort of panels where it's like a long shot, mm. I feel like he's too slight. Oh yeah, no, he's he's portrayed as this kind of impish, devious, small man. Which is even funnier because his companion is an even smaller man because he's a penguin. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got these two kind of comic characters, these two comic short guys travelling together. It's kind of weird in that the Seventh Doctor and Frobisher are a bit too similar in character. <laughs> yes, that, um, that's very true. Um, Sylvester McCoy looks a lot like a penguin. But like, it's a, there's, a, like, there's a degree of caricature in it which you kind of need. And I'm only con comparing this to the other strips of the time where it's a bit phoned in and you can tell that some uh, an artist has been given a couple of publicity shots of Sylvester McCoy yeah. and the rest of them are just this kind of faceless yeah, character. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. And do you think of Frobisher uh, speaking in that voice that he speaks in, in the big Finnish audios? Um, yes. Yeah, I can't... Well, because I, I, I didn't read that many Frobisher comic strips before I then heard him... In the Holy Terror, Rob Shearman's yeah. big finish story, um, but I think Frobisher's is great. The, the the thing about him is that he's a bit similar to uh, River Song and a couple of other characters, where it's a character that thinks they're in their own show. Yeah, in a Doctor Who story, which is kind of great. Yeah. Um. What? Uh, this is a good question, actually. What is your history with Doctor Who comics? Like, how many of them have you read? 
Um, so I, as a, as like when I was probably about 11, I was, um, collecting old copies of Doctor Who Weekly and reading all of Tom Baker's comic strips Mm. and, uh, most of Peter Davison's as well in Doctor Who Monthly. So I read those and then I was reading the Paul McGann comic strips in the current Doctor Who magazine as they were coming out Mm -hmm. in the late 90s, early noughties. That is... So my only real exposure to Doctor Who comics, I never really went back and read many, like the odd one here and there, but it was really just the eighth Doctor ones. Yeah. Because once the TV movie finished and it felt like it wasn't coming back, Mm. it was that and kind of the big finish audios where I got my Doctor Who fix. Yeah. So the eighth Doctor ones, I know I've read them all. And then I remember reading maybe the ninth Doctor run when the series came back and being like, oh, all of a sudden this isn't as good. And I Mm. just, I've never really read them since. Like, I think there was one towards the 50th that I read a bit of, but, Mm. and I, I have since gone back and read some of the older ones. And actually I think a lot of the 80s stuff, Mm. I think is almost better than, I mean, the 90s stuff is great, but the 80s stuff feels like the stuff they were doing that ran alongside the TV series in the 80s feels to me better than the stuff they do running alongside the series now, if that makes sense. Yes. Well, I don't read the, I don't buy Doctor Who magazine anymore, so I don't know what the strip is like. The thing is, because I was getting into all of this retrospectively, um, and I had like a bit of an overview of different, you know, all of the different Doctors in different media. Um, The general impression was that the fourth Doctor and fifth Doctor comic strips were the best. Mm. They they had a huge, they they made a huge volume of them and they were just incredibly imaginative and different. And they were really, really different to the TV show whilst the Doctor was the same. Yeah. So that was, so I really enjoyed those. (coughs) The general impression that I got from looking at the sixth Doctor and seventh Doctor comic strips vaguely from buying like an old back issue here and there was there was just something it didn't have the same fun and, and energy yeah um so it was kind of mirrored to maybe the decline of the, the of the classic series as well mm. I don't know but there, there just wasn't a there, there wasn't the same humor or warmth just even just looking at like a, a one you know a one issue episode of a comic strip yeah um I just didn't get the same warmth from that as I did the fourth doctor and fifth doctor strips i think i also think and i hate to sound like somebody who's just recorded a big finish play but you can do a lot more with the comics you know they always say i'm a big finish but oh we can do anything because it's all in the listener's mind yeah sort of thing but with the comics like the it's really the limit of the imagination of the artist and when you've got great artists Mm. they can come up with these huge worlds and vistas in a couple of frames yeah that's the TV show just couldn't uh, create back then. Yeah, like yeah. The Iron Legion, which was the first comic, was a rejected TV script, and it was rejected because there's no way they could have fucking made it. Yeah, and it's drawn by the man who drew Watchmen and most of oh, Alan Moore yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> like you start, you, you start with uh, yeah, the the artist from Watchmen and a rejected TV script because the budget was too wrong. Yeah, and then eventually, that's the thing is that there was just a huge. <clears throat> And also because the show was more popular, there was a demand for a weekly Doctor Who magazine. It's bizarre, yeah. it's bizarre yeah. thinking of it now that there was a weekly Doctor Who I magazine. Mean, Doctor Who Adventures was weekly. I don't know whether that's still going, but certainly for a good six or seven years, you got Doctor Who Adventures every week. So, back to Cold Day in Hell. A couple yeah. of things I picked up on. Um, we'll talk about Ross in a minute. Uh, but the Doctor does say, come on, Ross, we've got work to do. <laughs> the panels, which, you know, uh, foreshadowing. And also, considering this went out at the same time as Dragonfire, the Doctor murders the Ice Lord by raising a sunscreen which exposes him to sunlight, and it's the same way as Kane dies in Dragonfire. So not only is the Doctor a murdering fuck, Mm. which we know the Doctor always is, but every pretend he's not, or she's not, Mm. um... It's, uh, yeah, like, that sort of thing just wouldn't happen today. Somebody at the BBC would go, no, we're killing somebody like this in the the show, you can't do it. Mm. I just thought that was a a coincidence. So uh, what do you think of Ross? Um, Well, okay, so the Ice Warriors co-conspirator? Yeah, I'd say that. uh, It's called Ross. (laughs) 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 
Um, yeah, it's just very funny. It's a shame that it's 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 not uh, it's not on audio to hear the eyes where it's say Ross. It'll be, we'll campaign to uh, <laughs> big finish. But I just like it that Doctor Who villains are always called like Gartep the Destroyer, yeah. and or like Davdek for leader of the yeah. Seven Galaxies. But no, got Ross. Mm. I'm Ross from Aeox. <laughs> I'm helping the ice warriors out. I mean, there's like, yeah, it's, it's, I just think of Ross from Friends, just like we were on a break. <laughs> pivot, pivot. <laughs> Yes, that's exactly. I mean, he's not really a, much of a fleshed out character. I'm not even sure you figure out what his motivation was for helping the Ice Warriors. Yeah, maybe he just didn't like the warmth. Yeah, it's it's all a bit. It's really it's really really kind of stereotypical Doctor Who storytelling, but well done. So there's lots of you know, there's like a group of rebels who turn up and yeah. all they want to do is defeat the Ice Warriors. Yeah, um, uh, and they they finally have a showdown with the Ice Warriors, and one of them says. You murdered a bunch of defenceless holiday makers. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the sort of dialogue you only get in Doctor Who. <laughs> they were only on holiday, you prick. <laughs> uh, which, you know, is very Orphan 55. Yeah. Which has just been broadcast when we record this. Uh, so it was written by Simon Furman. Do you know anything about him? Um, no. Well, fortunately, I've got some information for you. He wrote a couple of Sixth Doctor and Seventh Doctor comics. He also, he's been kicking around a while, he also wrote some comics for the short-lived Torchwood magazine, and he wrote a load of, for the Battles in Time series with the Tenth Doctor, and probably best known to um, me, mm. uh, as the writer of Axis of Insanity, a Sixth Doctor and Perry, no, Fifth Doctor? I think yeah, yeah, Fifth yeah. Doctor and Perry, uh, Big Finish, Main Range, but he is best known in the comics world for being one of the main contributors to the Transformers comics. What yeah. a guy. What a guy. He's been around. <laughs> he, he certainly can tell stories yeah. about holiday makers and science fiction. Yeah, he's a big name in the tie-in fiction genre. <laughs> he is indeed, um, which is what we're interested in, obviously. Yes, yes. What timeline does this exist in? Well, this is this is the odd thing, is that I, I read it not having read any preceding comic strips for the Seventh Doctor, and mostly the Sixth Doctor as well. And uh, it just ends with Frobisher saying, well, um, uh, I can help these guys out, and I really miss Perry, so I'm going to go. Um, so it's like, well, what's... what's what, what, what? So you, you, you've been travelling with Perry, and she's gone. But and they Perry... mention Yukarnos. Yes, so... Yeah. so, so it's just, it's obviously, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to try and put it together in a fictional sense, but it's obvious that they're, they've, they're acknowledging what's happened in the TV show, but they've got to work around it. And so it's just this awkward thing of the comic strip characters saying, uh, yeah, uh, Perry left on the TV show <laughs> <laughs> uh, and their comic strip counterparts are sad that she's gone. It's just weird. It's just weird. So I remember, um, so the Doctor obviously goes off with Ola. Yes. Um, and is it this weird thing where, and all of a sudden, he's suddenly with Ace in the comics? I don't know how they acknowledge it. But is it the case that the comics just went, we're not doing Bonnie Langford. <laughs> <laughs> we're not doing Mel, sorry. Yeah. Um, so Not um, my companion. <laughs> exactly. Like, I just, it's it's weird. Like, it's, this, it's, it's a weird acknowledgement of the TV series, yeah. but going, oh, we just can't fit this in. I mean, Mel's backstory is... Uh, convoluted enough, yes. and you know there's about 14 books and 20 audio plays that explain it. I'm sure. And I'm if big finish, Nick Briggs. If you're listening, we need you to somehow tie this comic strip mm. into established continuity. And if there's anyone that can do it, big finish can do it. Yeah, and it, it's a bit of a sad exit for Frobisher because for what is a very good character, he, just he should do something off. more. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what's that appealing about the. Uh, the, the rebels that he... I know, uh, they're terrible. Uh, like, I, <laughs> I mean, maybe he's just got a thing for big, burly men. Oh, I don't know. Maybe there's, you know, uh, a, a massacred holiday planet is quite an appealing place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't... Yeah, because Frobisher, I don't know much about the comics, the Six Doctor run, but it always felt like he was a part of it that everybody really loved. Yes. And then it's like, they've got, oh, we need to get rid of this talking penguin really yeah. quickly. 
And it's just, it's basically what happens to Stephen, isn't it? Where, like, at the end of the Savages, he just goes, oh, well, we'll probably stay here. Mm. This this quarry planet looks like a much better place to stay than yes. travelling in all of time and space. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think uh, from a dramatic point of view, if you spend most of your time visiting planet quarries, you would eventually get, like, a kind of Stockholm syndrome <laughs> where you only want to be around quarries, like... If you're that, if you spend that long away from your home, you would just be like, mm, I think I like, I like places that look like uh, the South Downs gravel pit. It's what uh, Morrissey's 2005 album "You Are the Quarry" is about. <laughs> <laughs> I've also, I've just realised that also on the cover to the the graphic novel, uh, Frobisher is on it doing a karate move. <laughs> He's holding oh, his hands up like is. John Pertwee, going <laughs> hi. <laughs> I mean, you can't see that on a podcast, but trust me, it's great. Look it up. You've got the internet. Um, is there anything else you want to say about that particular story? I just thought it was interesting that you, you commented how the the comic strip producers obviously wanted to get around putting Bonnie Langford <laughs> into the strip. So they in, instead introduced the character that sucks all the heat <laughs> from, the, from its environment. See, we've oh, all met people like that. We all met people like that. I went on a date with one last night. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. Um, I, because I really like Bonnie Langford and I really like Mel. I think she's quite a pleasant surprise. Mm. Like, she's a breath of fresh air after a bunch of companions that seem to hate being with the Doctor yeah. throughout the 80s. That you've got someone, she is annoying, but she's meant to be annoying. And I think yeah. it's a like it's the decision that's kind of done on purpose. Yeah. And it just seems I'm always a little bit like, oh, I don't feel like it was necessarily we needed another season with her and McCoy, but another season with her and Colin Baker, I think would have been. Yeah. And so to see her in any extended universe a bit more, because she's done Big Finish, but yeah. she hasn't done that many. And they did. So it would have been nice to just have a bit more of her in the comic strip, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've got nothing wrong with, I've got no issue with Mel. She was fine. Maybe the artist just didn't want to draw all of the little curls <laughs> and on the her, dots on her hair. The yeah. Polka dots. Yeah, it was like, oh, it's too much work. I get it. I get it. So, uh, your final review: Would you class this as fan wank or damn swank? I would say this is damn swank. I too would say it was damn swank. There we go. That was cold day in hell. Too 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 hot for TV. So next up. We've got uh, BBV. BBV are Bill Baggs' video, which is, you know, quite egotistical of Bill Baggs. Uh, Bill Baggs was a guy who, in the 90s, um, was... He made sort of Doctor Who, and sometimes he made Doctor Who spin-offs where he procured the rights to, like, Liz Shaw or the Autons and made some videos. Uh, and he moved into audio adventures, sort of, in the late 90s when he realised that the production values on his videos were terrible. And he, this audio range was known as Adventures in Time and Space. And the thing we're going to talk about today is Republica. But just so you know what's going on at the time, it was released in April 1998. Uh, Philip Siegel was still knocking about trying to get another Who movie made, according to Doctor Who magazine, but obviously failed, thank God. Uh, the news that The Underwater Menace 2, would or 2 or 3, whichever one we had, would finally be getting a VHS release caused much excitement for everybody. Um, the Virgin New Adventures books that only featured Benny because they'd had their licence taken away. Benny? Benny! Benny! Bernice Summerfield. Um, they, um, which were monthly, were then going bi-monthly, which was kind of a sign that, you know, nobody was buying them, I guess. Did you ever read any of those? The Benny books? Yeah. I tried to get into them uh, after I got into the Big Finish Benny audios, but uh, no, I haven't... He's got time to read Benny books. Well, we'll be covering them all on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> At the time, BBC Books were releasing Legacy of the Daleks, which I think was by John Peel, not that one, uh, and The Hollow Men. And that was kind of all that was going on in Doctor Who at mm. the time. So before we get into this one, like, what was your first, again, exposure to it? I remember watching some of the Stranger videos, yeah. which you had purchased. Yeah. Um, I remember Auton. Mm -hmm. 
uh, Autumn was the most exciting thing. Thing is, I was I was too young to watch The Stranger. It yeah. was actually quite a strange, disturbing experience <laughs> watching um, actors, uh, lots of Doctor Who actors playing adult characters with guns and violence and swearing and sex. Yeah, um, it was really, really bizarre. It was really, it was really bizarre, and it felt really, you know, it felt edgy and adult to a child yes. <laughs> and in hindsight it's not yeah. um, it is a child's idea of edgy and adult it's like when you you do a play in like gcse drama or something and you're like oh it handles heroin abuse and you're like oh we're so fucking edgy but you don't actually know anything about heroin abuse so it's just like you got any drugs mate <laughs> it's that thing of um oh so there's no jokes or monsters and everybody looks serious this is for adults yeah but then you watch it again it's like Oh, there's just not a lot happening, really. <laughs> um, so, and then uh, I knew that there was audios, uh, audio stories out. Uh, I didn't listen to that many of them. Okay. So, um, I should. This is where I should probably drop for our millions of listeners that I know all about these productions because I wrote a book called uh, Downtime: The Lost Years of Doctor Who, uh, available from Obverse Books, and it is about the '90s and a bit before and a bit after, and it's about the releases of BBV, Real Time, uh, Magic Bullet, and just all the sort of either nearly Doctor Who's or Doctor Who fan spin-offs that were, in inverted commas, professionally produced. And because they were all available to buy on the high street in HMV and places like that. Uh, so I know a bit more about these things than uh, anybody really should, to be honest. Yeah. I remember that the... That I remember the logo for BBV, and I thought, oh, well, you don't know what a logo is as a kid. It just it's just something corporate and grown up. And I thought, well, that's kind of close to the to the BBC. It's probably so the must, same it's, thing. It's the same thing. British Broadcasting Video. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So I just thought it looked it was legit. Yeah, I mean, I think I I remember what, like when I first got into them, thinking, well, these must be legit. Yeah. So. This is the first one. It's called Republica. Of the audio range. And they did about 30 or 40 audios in the end. Now, they kicked off rather cheekily with a series about two time travellers called The Professor and Ace. The Professor being played by Sylvester McCoy and Ace being played by an actress called Sophie Aldred. That's a clear Blake Seven. <laughs> what happened is that Bill Baggs had gone to the BBC and said, could I make Doctor Who on audio? We want to adapt the new adventures. And they said no. And he basically went, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And <laughs> well, sod you. <laughs> yeah, fuck you, BBC. You're going to tell me what to do. <laughs> so he got in touch with his uh, sort of crew of writers, which included Mark Gatiss. Gatiss or Gattis? Uh, uh, um, Senor Mark. Gatiss. Uh, so he got in touch with Mark Gatiss and said, have you got anything? I need to make these really quickly. So he had two pitches that he pitched to BBC Books for the past Doctor's range. He put in three pitches. One of them became the second Doctor book, The Roundheads, and this, Republica. originally called Cromwell's Dust and the next play Prosperity Island which was originally Island of Terror no not Prosperity Island Island of Terror were both his rejected pitches and he turned the scripts around in a week which you may or may not be able to tell from uh, the production and so they asked uh, Sophie and Sylvester if they wanted to get involved and they said yes sounds like a great idea this is before Big Finish, like Big Finish haven't started doing their Benny audios, I don't think, um, although they weren't far off. But um, just, we'll give a little rundown of the plot very quickly. Uh, the Professor and Ace 
land in modern-day England, but things are not as they should be. England has a Lord Protector and technology is more advanced. They get embroiled in warring political factions, uh, where it seems King Charles's heir wants his throne back. The Lord Protector, as it turns out, has been manipulated by a guy called Le Conte, um, <laughs> who has been, by the side of all the Lord Protectors, manipulating them and history. It turns out that Le Conte is an alien fugitive just fucking with humans for his own amusement while he manipulates them into building a missile that he can use to send back through a wormhole that he came through to destroy his own race. He sends it back through the wormhole, but it also travels in time and he destroys his own race before he even left the planet, rendering the whole thing null and void and history goes back to the way it was and 1998 is still 1998. What did you think? I struggled with this. Yeah? I thought uh, I thought it was quite toneless. Interesting. I just thought it was people walking from in from rooms into other rooms. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's very Reign of Terror. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I see. I really like this. I think I think it lacks in sound design a lot of the time. Like if it had more sound design, I think things would uh, yeah. you know feel a little bit fuller and you know there is there's a lot of stuff going on but it just it doesn't quite all sit together um and there's some terrible exposition where people go as you know bear moth is the most powerful rocket and da, 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 da. at the time i loved it mm. because it just felt like new doctor who but without you know the the in a weird way, there was no fan wank. There was no like, oh, it's got to be the Cybermen or the Daleks because they couldn't do any of those things. The Doctor, and we'll call him the Doctor because mm. it's the fucking Doctor, and Ace, arrive in a place, they have an adventure, and then they leave, and then that's it. And it's mm. like, actually, from all the Doctor Who that you were consuming, it felt like you didn't really get that. Yeah, that, the, the impression that I got was that I, I could imagine this being well-received because there have been so many embarrassments in terms of... It was still... People were still figuring out how to do Doctor Who well. Yeah. And this is Doctor Who. Yeah. I mean, even the theme tune, like, is, a, is like a, a mashed-up Doctor Who theme oh, tune. I love the theme tune. When I, when I went back... When I was writing the book and I went back to these plays for the first time, the theme tune... I got very nostalgic about it in the same way as I do the McCoy titles. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like, oh, I forgot about this, and that's uh, from Alistair Locke, who um, does the soundtrack for all nearly Doctor Who things. Yeah, um, Lock, Stock, and <laughs> theme tunes. <laughs> that's him. It's it's a. Uh, I really like that theme tune. But does it does it do anything for you at all? Not really. I think it's got the same. It's the perfect theme tune for a series that wants to be Doctor Who, but doesn't commit to it, the final thing. The theme tune wants to be the Doctor Who theme tune, but doesn't quite commit to it. So it starts out with... It's like almost there. It's like one note off the theme tune. Um, it's fine, it's fine. But it's just, I mean, it is odd, because it's, ob it's obviously Doctor Who. There's loads of continuity references in there to... The classic series. Like, there are references to the Reign of Terror yeah. in the script. It shows you how little the BBC gave a fuck about Doctor Who at this yes. point. That this guy was allowed to carry on with this for years. Yeah. And eventually, the only reason he was stopped was not because Big Finish were doing Doctor Who. It was because Andrew Beach, who was like a notable name in fandom, went to the BBC and basically said, Do you know this guy's doing this? You should stop him. Thinking... He because he thought he would could get the license to do Doctor Who audios and Big mm. Finish got the license and uh, Andrew Beach is uh, probably miserable somewhere. Yeah, it's a sh it's a bit like um, it's like you know like ticket touts outside of gigs. <laughs> it's like doing that and then expecting like well one day they'll let me run the O2. <laughs> Point like, just yeah. like I just keep fogging these Spice Girls tickets. <laughs> they'll put me in charge of events. <laughs> You know, I get them so many, so much business. You know, um, I. What did you think about McCoy and Aldred in this? I thought they were good. I'm going to be honest. In preparation for this, uh, uh, you asked me to make notes, and the main note that I made whilst listening to this story was um, that the word pizza is never used in the classic series. <laughs> Because there's a point in it at the uh, uh, early on in the story, uh, 
Sylvester, uh, the, the professor, yeah. uh, aka the doctor, <laughs> uh, says to Ace, aka Ace, <laughs> um, uh, tell me everything you've learned, you know, whilst, you know, researching what's going on. And um, she says, oh, can we get a pizza first? And he says, we can do it over pizza. And it's a really cute little scene. And it was like, oh, well, this is the Doctor and Ace. That's, that's, a, that's a really nice little bit of dialogue. And then it was just odd because I was like, they never, they never said pizza. They never <laughs> said pizza in the whole of the classic TV series. They never used the word pizza. That's because pizza was invented in 1990. Was it? No. Do you think? But did William Hartnell ever eat a pizza? Oh, pizza? Oh, <laughs> none of that foreign muck. Mm. Because uh, pizzas here—they're very small. Very small. <laughs> uh, on stage, pizzas are very big. You've got to be very big with your pizzas. <laughs> uh, I—I mean, obviously now that it was something that Rusty Davis picked up on when he brought it back, and in Rose, you get that whole pizza yes. thing with uh, Noel Clark giving his worst performance as Mickey Smith. Yeah, which, chips. Were chips was did anybody ever use the word chips? I think the only food that was ever eaten in Doctor Who was cheese in Day of the Daleks, yes, and uh, bacon sandwiches in remembrance of the Daleks, yes, and jelly babies, uh, bacon and eggs, bacon and eggs from the food machine, yes, that was it. I can't think this is gripping stuff. No, it? it's important <laughs> because it was just like it was just. It was part of the characterisation. I mean, it could be a sign that just we're more obsessed with food that's, now, culturally. That, that's probably what it... It was probably Mark Gatiss commenting on uh, the fast food nation that we've become, you know, because he's obsessed with the war, so probably only each tripe. Um, that is probably that when the classic series went out, there, were, um, there was industry for working class people to work in, and now uh, it's primarily retail and the catering and food industries oh, that you can work in. So uh, I think it's a shift you... to a, a more food-centric society. You did some politics. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. Like We're covering in, it all here. Yeah, and uh, fuck it, that's a good enough point. <laughs> <laughs> I really like McCoy and Aldred. I think they fall back into the roles with ease. And actually, this is the first time they've played the roles since uh, Dimensions in Time. Because now, every old Doctor, you're just used to them playing their part forever like mm. Colin Baker faces the Daleks with his 15th companion for the 400th time yeah. in a big finish story so we just kind of accept that the old doctors all do audios and they'll all do them until they die uh, which yeah. I hope never happens I hope they all live forever um, big finish disturbs me now because it's a bit like going to a museum where they've got exhibits and you press a button and the character speaks <laughs> they've produced so many audio adventures at this point that uh, it's just it's as if colin baker is in a glass cabinet and they just <laughs> press a button and he recites the same dialogue no disrespect colin yes yeah, cool. <laughs> but yes yeah, so, but this was like the first time they've really you'd really heard them back in the act and I feel like McCoy is more laid back, but his performance is more assured. Yeah. Now, I know a lot of people have a problem with McCoy's performance, and he's certainly an actor with certain limitations. But here he just feels quite subdued, but like it's yeah. a conscious subdued. I didn't have a problem with any of the performances, because that Sophie Aldred and Sylvester McCoy, there is a re there's a really nice uh, yeah, assuredness and lightness to it, in terms of they know how to play the characters, but they're not really trying to prove anything. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's really, really solid uh, uh, performances from both of them. And the rest of the cast, I've just looked here, and it's not Le Conte, it's Le Compte. Uh, oh, well, that's rubbish, isn't it? It'll, it'll always be a Le Conte to me. I will think of him as a Le Conte, because, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's the, 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 the main thing that I didn't like was the fact that the whole point is that the, the villain's plan is defeated by... Even if the Doctor and Ace weren't there, sorry, the Professor and Ace, <laughs> he would have kind of, he would have undone himself anyway. It's one of those things where they turn up and have no impact on events. Yeah, they just kind of get involved because somebody, basically, Ace gets mistaken for a spy because the spy gets randomly run over. Yeah. Um, what the rest of the cast is basically a who's who of the people who were in all the videos for Bill Bags. So you've got John Wadmore who is in The Stranger. He's one of the terrorists, mm. who, along with David Troughton. You've got Andrew Fetz, or Fetes, who plays Devlin in this, and he's in the Auton films. Bryony Pritchard, who's in the Auton films. Uh, George Telfer, who's in there in the Auton films. John Ainsworth, who's 
just part of the range and he was in various audio and then you've got um Lambert is played by Michael Wade who was the old guy from the Auton films what do you think of Michael Wade's performance he's he's all right i mean i the thing is because i have seen the Auton videos I knew I could recognise the voices, and yeah. because of the time period, I was like, "Oh, they've just got the whole, the whole cast of the Auton videos and yeah. them to play parts." But again, it's that thing of Michael Wade is a good actor. Um, in, well, he's good at playing a kind of older, authoritative yeah. figure. Um, but it's that thing of everybody's kind of doing their job well, but it's just not interesting enough. And, but also, it's not in. There's nothing of like it's really inoffensive. And it's that, so it has the, it has, it comes across as being to a degree classy at the time mm. because there'd been so much, there'd been so many kind of misfires and people didn't quite know how to, to make Doctor Who well. Yeah. Um, that when something came along that was incredibly kind of straight and didn't do anything particularly wacky, it came across better because there was, you know, the show was having kind of like an identity crisis in how yeah. to do it well. There was no consensus on how to do it. Um, yeah, so I just thought it was just a bit toneless. There was right. like, it was neither... If anything, it would have been better as a comic strip because the central premise is interesting, like an alternate Britain that's gone on a divergent timeline all to do with how the country is governed and the, the political factions and how the church affects the country. Those are interesting, but you kind of want to see the costumes and you want to yeah. see the different Britain. Uh, Does it feel like a late 90s Doctor Who TV series would? No, because there would have been monsters. Interesting. They would have been... They, they, they would have made it... Do you it, think? No, I think they would, have, they would have done something. It would have been... There would have been either more action or more humour or something crazier. That's the thing is that it's not a doc. It's you know it's it's a rip off Doctor Who story, but if it was a proper Doctor Who story, they would have. I felt like they would have done something a bit more exciting. With See, it. a lot of the sci-fi, especially the small amount of sci-fi that was made in Britain at that time. If you think of things like Crime Traveler and the Lost, the Last Train, Lost Train, whatever it's Last called, Last Train, Last Train. It's all very kind of people in rooms yeah so to me it actually feels like assuming it wasn't mark gatiss or russell t davis that were bringing back doctor who and it was just the bbc trying to make mm. a series i think there's a world where this version this is what a 1998 version of doctor who might have gone. oh yeah 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 no, i agree with that um but that was always my worry when the show came back was i just thought it's probably just actually gonna be quite dull yeah. That before before Christopher Eccleston's first series, I just thought it's just going to be. It'll probably be a well made, but a bit dull because science fiction and fantasy had really lost its balls. Yeah, and, and then just, you got burping bins. I know. Thanks. And, and, and tree people. <laughs> so I really like this. So Mark Gatiss had been involved in Doctor Who quite a lot at this point, and the League of Gentlemen radio show had was just over. So, and they're about a year away from making the TV show. So this is kind of his last contribution to kind of this level of Doctor Who fandom. It's like mm. everything else that he did after that. Well, the next thing he does, apart from the Doctor Who nights, is he does a couple of big finishes. Yeah. So, although he was quite heavily involved in this scene, I think this is, he kind of washes his hands of it and it's like, well, no, if I'm doing Doctor Who now, I'm a professional writer that gets paid for it and is on BBC Two. I'm only doing official proper Doctor Who. And actually, <coughs> when this play was announced, it was announced under a pen name for Mark Gatiss, but ultimately he didn't use it. But yeah. Do you know what the pen name was? Oh, I cannot remember. It wasn't yeah. a name that, that stuck out. You know, if you condense Mark and Gatiss, you get Matisse. Ah, that's true, which which is Latin for master. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Anything more to say on this? Oh, I just thought it was a bit dull. A bit dull. I like the comic. I like the comics. It had pictures. It had pictures. That's yeah. a great review. So would you say it is fan wank or damn swank? I'd say it's fan wank, but it's not fan wanky enough. If it was more fan wanky, I'd like it.
Yeah. But um, I. But it's the sort of thing that could only appeal to fans. It's 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 a fan. It's it's aimed at fans, but it's the kind of thing that's aspiring to be inoffensive Radio Four drama, mm. which is a terrible crime. Well, I'm going damn swank. I love it, and uh, as I strangely really like this era of non Doctor Who. And if we do more of these podcasts, we are going to cover a couple more of these plays. And I'm determined to find one that you love, because there's got to be one. I don't think it's The Wanderer starring Nicholas Briggs as a pretend doctor. <laughs> I, I'm open to anything. Any rip-off Cybermen. <laughs> the Cyberons? Uh, yes. Oh, okay. Do you know what? If we do a few of these, we're going to have to do a commentary on uh, Zygon or that probe when to die. The probe one where they recast Liz Shaw with, I think her name's Hazel Burrows or something like that. And she she literally looks like someone that forages. <laughs> <laughs> the forager. <laughs> Stunning. <laughs> Stunning Nicholas Briggs. So there we go. Well, that was episode one and maybe the only episode. We'll call it the pilot episode. Yes. Um, you are Bill Potts to my uh, Peter Capaldi. It was very enjoyable. If we do another one, it's going to be on... Full Fathom 5. Yes. The Unbound uh, Doctor Who story starring, is it David Collins? Yes. Collins? Yes. As the Doctor. And uh, we're going to do Continuity Errors, which is a short story by Stephen Moffat, who later went on to write other Doctor Who things, such as loads of Doctor Who. (laughs) (laughs) So this was the first episode of Doctor Who Too Hot. TV. I've been Dylan. You've been Jack. Yes, I have. Yes. Say goodbye to our listeners. Goodbye. Goodbye, listeners.